After eight days had passed, it was time to circumcise the child, and he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel, before he was conceived in the womb. When the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male shall be designated as holy to the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons, which is the symbol for those who are very poor for the special offering they can make. And now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, Simeon came into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And the child's father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. And then Simeon blessed them and said to his mother, This child is destined for the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There also was a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple but worshipped there with fasting and prayer night and day. At that moment she came and began to praise God and to speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. When they had finished everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. This is the word of life. Well, the long passage that I just read is a conclusion of Luke's version of the birth narrative. Now, all of you who came to our Christmas Eve services did not hear those verses. We cut the story off before we got there. But if you took time in your home, you probably did the same thing as you read the Christmas story. Didn't go into this part of the story. However, I have to admit that that's not surprising because this isn't a very spectacular part of the story. The early part is filled with lots of suspense and drama. It has wonderful visitations of angels and wonderful prophecies and the most spectacular event imaginable. There was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth among those whom he favors. Great peace be to you. And we add to Luke's account... Uh, some of the drama intrigue from Matthew's version of the Nativity, 
We have more visitations from angels and a miraculous star that will lead the Magi from far, far away from the east. And not only do they travel all that distance, but they survive the journey without getting robbed or having <clears throat> some other mishap along the way. And then if you think of the calculation of if the star's up there and this little place is down here, how do you really find it? I mean, it was a miracle. It was dramatic. Well, this kind of story is the story that inspires those movie makers with the great cinematography and the great splashes of light and fireworks and, and all of that kind of thing. But by comparison, this part of the story is rather mundane and ordinary. We have this poor peasant couple, Joseph and Mary, going about these routine, unexciting, legalistic requirements of the Jewish law. These are everyday, very common rituals of a devout Jewish family in their home life. Nothing spectacular or exciting here. And then we have this old man, Simeon, at the temple that day. There's nothing spectacular about an old man at the church or temple. When old age brings a man closer to his own death, it's not unusual for him to get serious about spiritual matters. When he's young and feeling invincible and immortal, sometimes he doesn't come around church much, but later on there's a change in disposition. However, Simeon had always been close to God and devout. He was a spiritual man for his whole life. He had a well-developed relationship with God. In fact, he had been led by the Spirit of God to be at the temple that day. Simeon had been receptive to God's Spirit touching his heart and allowing him to perceive the divine presence in this event unfolding before his eyes. Anna the prophet, who was now 84, was also there, and that was not unusual, for we're told she never left the temple. She was always there following the spiritual disciplines of fasting and prayer. Now the main reason Luke is telling us about Simeon and Anna is because he's trying to establish the credibility of their witness to the special nature of Jesus. But accidentally, he shows us another spiritual truth, which is that those who practice the spiritual disciplines of worship, prayer, studying the scriptures, are better able to see and perceive the divine presence in ordinary, everyday events. This is so important, for so often the faith is presented with the miraculous stories in the Bible, so much so that it often makes some people have unrealistic expectations in their minds. They expect visitations from angels, or to be struck by lightning, or to have some very dramatic event in occur to show them that God is real, and thereby give them something tangible and physical to hold on to as proof for their faith. But we believe that is a false expectation. For the vast majority of us, God does not violate God's natural laws of the physical world just to communicate to us. 
Simeon and Anna did not get any spectacular proof that this ordinary-looking baby had some special powers, Jesus did not walk on water that day. They didn't have a big baptismal pool that he could walk on. He did not feed or the 5,000 or heal anyone that day. Rather, it was the faithful devotion of those spiritual disciplines which gave Anna and Simeon this gift of discernment, this ability to perceive the divine within this ordinary event. Luke is also showing us that those who are faithful and wait upon the Lord, that their faith will eventually be rewarded. That's not a new idea. That theme is all through our Bible. But the message to us is that if we want to experience the divine presence in our lives, if we want to sense God's Spirit moving among us, then those boring old routine rituals and devotions are a way to train our mind, our eyes, and our ears. And like Simeon, at times we will feel the Spirit moving us to go somewhere, to be present sometime for something wonderful happening. In the many years of my ministry, I cannot count the times I've heard one of you dear saints telling me about a time when you felt this mysterious urgency to do something or to attend some event or service. And when you responded, you discovered that you were at the right place at the right time to either receive a special blessing or to, in fact, be a special blessing to somebody else. In my own ministry of pastoral care, there are so many people with hurts and sorrows, concerns and worries. I know I'm missing many people as I'm making my rounds. I can't be everywhere. But there are times when my schedule changes and I just happen to be at the right place and the right time for some crisis or some problem. So when that happens, I, I feel that sometimes that's God's way of remaining anonymous, that coincidence that happens. But there was one that wasn't a, a change, but it was the ordinary, regular routine. Last April, I happened to be making my hospital calls at St. Francis, and I got an email message to my cell phone that Ron Turner had called the church asking for prayers for his son Michael, who was in ICU, after he and a co-worker who was killed instantly were struck by a reckless driver leaving the road and hitting both of them beside their service truck. In asking for prayers, Ron was asking for God's love and grace to be with his son Michael and with him and Mike's wife, Cindy, who were anxiously awaiting a hopeful word from the doctors. I was only a flight of stairs away when I got that message that Sherry Nellis had texted me uh, on my cell phone. And so I was there almost immediately. They shared what little details they knew with, about what had happened and were only 10 or 15 minutes before the doctor came out 
to break the terrible news that they had done all that they could do for Michael and that he was dying. They were invited back to be with him to say their goodbyes and express their love as Mike's life slipped away. Well, I went with them and prayed with them and waited with them. Well, there was no divine altering of the physical universe and no divine teleporting me and no stopping of the sun so that our schedules would align for the flow of history of that event. Nevertheless, God was working and present in this ordinary uh, day. Well, because I am there regularly, that is an ordinary event at St. Francis in the mornings for me to be making my visitations. However, a very ordinary thing, we've just had the offering taken up, and this congregation's financial support of the budget provides for a full-time minister of pastoral care from this church to make hospital rounds and to be available virtually 24-7, as my family will attest, because Ron's faith told him where his strength and help could be found, that it was working through this ordinary, everyday, week-in, week-out ministry of the church. He turned to the church for prayers and for God's loving grace to be present. And as the symbol and the channel of God's grace, this congregation's love and care, I could be there. Well, perceiving the divine within the ordinary is what the incarnation is all about. God became flesh and dwelt among us so that we could learn that God is with us all the time, whether we sense it or feel it or not. But through the eyes of faith, the divine can be perceived in all these common, ordinary experiences. Jesus demonstrated that when he called his disciples. He recognized a divine calling and purpose for every one of them. These very ordinary, common folk to be his disciples. Fishermen, tax collectors, and political radicals even, the zealots. And beyond the twelve, there were all the women who, in today's calculations, would also be called disciples. Jesus could see the divine within all these ordinary people, and he called it forth. He saw the potential, the possibilities, and he believed in them, and he taught them to believe in themselves. Well, Oak spent a whole lot of verses in this gospel and he must have had some important message. As I reflected, what could that message be? I look at the account of Simeon and Anna and see this great potential that they had revealed to them in their eyes in this little baby that this poor couple had brought to this temple. And I got to thinking about how parents might raise their children differently if someone told them how important this child was going to be when he or she grew up. A part of our theology is the belief that every human being is special as a child of God who is loved by God. Each person has some God-given purpose for his or her life. As Christians, we believe that it is a part of our calling 
and our responsibility to help others discover and believe that they really are a child of God and do have an important purpose in the life of the world. That's what our ritual, our sacrament of infant baptism affirms. It is the outward and visible sign and action, uh, a ritual that represents and impresses upon our eyes the meaning of the action. The child in the baptism is initiated into Christ's holy church, as our ritual says, and incorporated into God's mighty acts of salvation meaning each child has a part of and a role to play in God's work in the world. Unfortunately, because of early childhood experiences, too many people grow up feeling like they are damaged goods. They feel like they are worthless. Life situations often make children feel like that. As a way of combating that feeling that they're just a piece of trash, I think it's the 12-step programs came up with this expression, God don't make trash. The flip side of that is every child is special and loved. Sadly, far too many children grow up feeling like they have no value, like they're so much trash in the eyes of parents and society. Economic conditions, political conditions have created situations where young people see no hope for their future and so they are susceptible to be recruited as terrorists or to join gangs to be somebody. We see that our self-image is greatly determined by what we see reflected in the eyes of those significant others who may be raising us. We see affirmation and love. We feel good about ourselves, but if we see only criticism and condemnation, anger